Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communication Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about optimal P and K levels in the soil. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team, Dan Kaiser, Lindsay Pease, and Jeff Fetch. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Hi, I'm Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher and soil scientist. I work primarily in nutrient management research, and I'm at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. And I'm Lindsay Pease. I am an assistant professor and extension specialist in nutrient and water management, and I'm at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. Uh, this is Daniel Kaiser. I am a nutrient management specialist here on the St. Paul campus. Uh, one thing I want to start with, though, before we get started in um, our topic today is we did have a comment from our last podcast. Um, I wanted to make a clarification. There was a question related to a comment that we had in terms of urea storage, um, either through the, um, the transcription of the podcast or the podcast itself. Um, there's a little confusion in terms of what we meant in terms of storage on the ground um, as we were at the time talking about on-farm storage and I started talking about a different thing. So the thing I would think we need to clarify is that it is illegal to store urea on any surface on the ground or gravel or anything like that. So we weren't meaning that in terms of the um, what we're trying to, per, to convey from that particular talk. It was more of an instance uh, essentially of um, the attitude of it's better to have the urea in the field on the ground instead of having it sit in the bin over winter as related to late fall applications, which we do not agree with um, just because of some of the potential losses of that particular product. So I think we just need to clarify that a little bit about the fact that um, I think that was a comment that it is illegal to store it if you're storing it at a facility on the ground. All right, so starting off on this episode, um, what are some key takeaways that growers should know about interpreting soil tests? Well, you know, this is a good question. We get a lot of questions related to, um, you know, in particular, how, how do we sample a field? Um, you know, I'm currently been, um, and a number of us have been um, meeting with this for our nutrient certification program, uh, which is a, a retailer program that's um, being launched here in the state. And that's when one of the, I know the, the key discussion points is with some of the 590 standards is what exactly are the number of samples you need to take in terms of how large of a sample within a, within a field. And I've always maintained is that there's probably no singular best strategy across all fields. I um, mean, you have to really know your field and your variability. I mean, certainly if you've got soil tests that are well above our critical range, well above those very high classifications, really taking a real dense sampling isn't necessarily going to be important if you're in a situation where the fertilizer is really not going to give you a, a great benefit. Um, and uh, really looking at, um, I think particularly Lindsay, your area up in the northwest, uh, the western part of the Minnesota, where we get a lot of variability with high pH. I mean, circumstances there, you know, you make it a field that's all high pH, where it's it's continu it's pretty consistent that maybe a single field sample might be adequate from that. But um, you know, really, there's really no given strategy and you see I think a lot Jeff I don't know two and a half five acre grids you know for grid sampling and zone sampling a lot of zoning by soil type just a lot of things going on out there and I don't think one's better than the other because you still get a lot of variability within even those those small areas within fields. Yeah and I think sometimes um, and I've thought about this a lot you know being new to the Red River Basin sometimes it looks flat but it's a lot more variable under the surface than you would anticipate you know you may have two feet of really fine clay that's overlaying on top of maybe a loam that's three three feet down 
Um, so sometimes a good place to start is uh, an online tool, the NRCS Web Soil Survey. That can be a really good way to start and look at you know, what variability you might have in your field. And, and it's not always 100% accurate. It's not supposed to be accurate, but it may give you an idea of what's going on, um, especially if you're in kind of more transitional area that may be part, beat re part beach ridge, part lake plain. Um, yeah, that's, so that's where I start when I do soil sampling. And when I think of this question, I kind of think of fertilization philosophy when it comes to interpreting, interpreting soil test values. You know, we see, I get growers that come in and some of my coworkers that come in and bring me um, prescription maps from their retailers. And invariably what I see in most of these maps is I see very high soil test levels that dominate these fields. Maybe um, 60 to 80, 90% of the field is testing high or very high in phosphorus. And still they're prescribing, um, you know, oftentimes crop removal or maybe even rates that are slightly greater than that. And, you know, the philosophy there is really the question. Right, do you want to use a bill to maintain or crop removal philosophy? Or if it's rented ground, that you want to cut your input costs a little bit and maintain it on a tighter budget, you could use more of a sufficiency approach and probably get by and saving some fertilizer dollars and using those dollars somewhere else in your ag business for some other input or for some other need and maybe getting a greater return on investment on those dollars. And that's more of a philosophy thing than it is an actual, you know, soil test method thing. You know, and the one thing I think about a lot, um, you know, what study a lot of windshield time usually driving around to meetings so I get a chance to think about some of these things is, um, you know, is the general argument that you're going to get more yield with a high soil test versus a low soil test, which we know is true. I mean, if you've got a low versus a high, you're more likely to get less yield. But the, the question then I think then revolves around if I fertilize it, are the same and we've pretty much proven that we can get the same yield potential if we fertilize things accordingly so you know i think it is true that if you're maintaining lows consistently you're not putting any fertilizer on to maintain those lows that you're going to suffer some yield loss in that you know building up to a higher level really doesn't necessarily set us up to a higher yield potential so it's one of those things that um i i, I can see it from a grower standpoint in terms of managing risk, it makes a lot of sense because I'm gonna get my highest yield here. I might as well manage my risk and not have to worry too much about it. But right now with the economics, I mean, there's probably some gains that a lot of growers can be looking at there and reducing costs and using their soil tests to maybe not eliminate the fertilizer. I mean, but just going with cutting back a little bit and looking at maybe a percentage of crop removal or towards a starter rate, which is normally what we recommend for those very high soil tests. Because for the most part, you get above 20 part per million bray. If you're gonna get a response, it's gonna be to you know, 10, 20 pounds. Um, and putting you know, 80, 90 pounds out there for a removal for a 250, 260 bushel crop really isn't gonna give you any more advantage to that. So that's kind of been the main thing. Uh, when looking at it, I can see you know, kind of the reasoning for it, but in, it doesn't make sense in your mind in terms of that, but um, Overall, if you look at the economics, the economics really don't bear that you really need to be keeping soil tests much beyond the critical levels. Um, environmentally, what is the threshold at which we should avoid applications to prevent significant nutrient loss? Yeah, so this can be a little bit of a tricky question. And I think one of the main takeaways to think about is if you are applying at the economically and agronomically optimum rate, you tend to be below that environmental threshold. So if you're following our recommendations, 
you fall into a less risky category. But this is something I always really like to emphasize, and this is something that I saw when I was working in Ohio in Western Lake Erie Basin. Soil test phosphorus level is not the only indicator of risk. And I think we see that with our own phosphorus indices too. Um, in the state, there's, there's a lot of factors that play into that, but soil test level is one factor, but not the only factor. Yeah, and we saw things, I mean, I had a graduate student that just finished up a project a um, little over a year ago when we were trying to look at soluble phosphorus do movement downward. And um, you can see it's, it's pretty well tied if you look at concentration to soil tests. So you can use it, I think, as an indicator. As you said, though, if you start talking about other risks like erosion and those things come into play, there can be certain extenuating factors that also can, can impact it. But, um, you know, looking at soil tests, if you look at I mean, I agree with you, Lindsay, if you look at the agronomic levels that we, we maintain for, if you look at maintaining with fertilizer, that if you're below 50 part per million, that we know that the risk drops off substantially. And you right. see it's interesting because it's not a linear risk. It's, um, it's almost what you call a logarithmic. So mm -hmm. essentially, once it starts to crank up, it really starts to, starts to increase. And you look at situations 50, 75, 100 part per million, you start looking at dissolved phosphorus losses, really start to... Um, start to increase whether it's both loss downward, which is the downward movement of it, or um, surface water loss. Now the downward movement, one of the things I guess I've been interested in is with the soils, with the, with the calcium content we have, it should act as a pretty good uh, sponge to capture a lot of that, but if you've got you know preferential flow through mm -hmm. larger pores, that can be another story. And that's where, you know, it's, it's interesting, you mentioned no-till, there seems to be some attitude that no-till can fix the problem. I'm not so sure because you talk about a 4-R strategy that just changing one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to essentially to eliminate the problem. You may be looking at multiple factors in that case. Absolutely. I think, I think no-till is a really good example. It's something that, that we want to do, um, take away um, some of that disturbance to the soil and promote more structure. But sometimes something that can happen, and this is definitely true in our clay soils, is that when it gets really dry in the summer and those soils crack, um, those smaller cracks become really big. And fertilizer, any fertilizer that's just left on the soil surface, if you've just broadcast it and you've left it there, um, it can make it down into the soil. And this is something, especially if you have tile drainage, it will make it into the tile drains. Those cracks do connect to drains and um, that is something to really think about if if your structure, and that's not to say that no-till is bad, it's just you have to be a little bit more mindful of your fertilizer application strategies when you have um, a soil that can potentially crack. Yeah, the three the three management factors that come into that are, are tillage, placement of fertilizer, and also timing. You know, mm -hmm. if you're gonna if you're gonna put your phosphorus fertilizer on the surface in a no-till or reduced till situation, and you're not gonna incorporate it with tillage, and you're not gonna inject it below the soil surface, then timing is also important because mm -hmm. you run the risk of if you put it out there in the spring and you get a very flashy rainfall in mid to late April you could see a pretty significant amount of, of dissolved reactive phosphorus losses. Mm -hmm. And like you said, no-till has an advantage because you reduce soil loss, so you reduce, you're reducing the total phosphorus loss that's carried in the sediment, but you might have greater dissolved reactive phosphorus, which is what really is the major concern for surface waters. And what kind of concerns me, and I guess I don't want to make this think that we're really kind of railing here on no-till, is the easiest way to apply, particularly 
phosphorus is broadcast. So if you look at it in terms of, and I don't know, I think Ohio, there's still a fair amount mm -hmm. of broadcast phosphorus being applied on no-till acres. And what we see a lot of times with the reduced tillage is a stratification of the nutrients. So if you take, a, say, a zero to six inch sample, if you look at breaking it down into two inch increments, you're gonna see the majority of the fertilizer being near that upper surface. So where you may have, say, a 20 part per million test of zero to six, maybe you have 50 ppm or above just in the upper two inches. And you know where does that water interact with when it's going across the field? So that's kind of the thing that, you know, maybe a hybrid system, if you're not gonna do any deep injection or do any injection of the fertilizer where you go through and try to break up that stratification every once in a while might be effective, but it, it's been the main thing on that is, you know, we talk a lot about the four R's and rates where, you know, rate gets focused on a lot, um, but there, there, there are three other R's there. And even with this one, when you change, um, even you've got that, that still that broadcast application that you may need to be thinking about that more when you change tillage, which isn't necessarily one of the R's on that because it doesn't have to have to do a lot with the fertilizer application. So it's, it, it's not a simple system as a lot of these things interact and you have to really look at this more closely. And I think that's, you know, what you kind of find in these situations is that, you know, you, you fix one problem and then all of a sudden another issue might arise that, so we need to kind of be thinking more of a system approach versus just a singular change in, in a management system. Yeah, absolutely. And I really think that's, that's you know, the point of, of kind of all this soil health practices that we've been talking a lot about, you know, around the state and is that you are starting to look at your soil as a system and fertilizer needs to be part of that system. And I think the other thing that we haven't talked about, we've kind of focused on phosphorus because we're talking about environmental concerns. But from an agronomic standpoint, phosphorus laying near the soil surface or in the top two or three inches of soil, the the plant's utilization of it is probably just fine. It doesn't need to be incorporated into the soil or even injected. But when we think about potassium, then actually having it a little bit deeper in the soil and not having it all stratified on the soil surface might be advantageous yes. from an agronomic standpoint, even though it doesn't have an environmental component. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I saw, I know, just in the data out of Iowa, and I haven't really looked completely out at some of the data that George Ream collected before I started up here, but you looked at it, it was pretty clear that the placement aspect for phosphorus really wasn't all that important. And I remember looking too, when I was there, there was a study looking at fall and spring application for no-till situations, and even that really didn't matter for phosphorus. Um, so the timing aspect and the placement for the stratification, yeah, it doesn't seem to be very important, but then deeper placement of K can be, and then that's always the thing you run into is, I think the majority of the options we have that are easy are starter, and then that then what you boils down to then if, if K placement is an option is are you getting enough really to, to matter and that's so as I said it's not a simple question because all of a sudden you think you got one thing fixed and then you have to start making a change maybe somewhere else to get the, the system to more of an optimal scenario of, for management. Is there really an optimal soil test level that farmers should shoot for? You know, this is a good question, and the reason, you know, I, I like this question is from some of the discussions with growers, particularly in the southern part of the state, that are looking at across the border at their recommendations, where they have what they deem is a, a range of soil tests that are optimal for crop removal. So that's the thing I guess I've been thinking about more and more with our recommendations being um, more the sufficiency approach side, which is a little more conservative, particularly you get up towards the medium and high classifications is, you know, should there be an optimal level? Um, should we be recommending something that's optimal for maintenance? Um, it is one thing I am putting in to the current corn guidelines. I'm gonna likely write it into the soybean guidelines 
as a general outline for some sort of maintenance style approach because a lot of growers are using it. The main thing really here though is tying back into what we know about critical levels and what that probability of response is because I'm when you start looking at it, you start getting much uh, beyond that critical level. It really doesn't make any sense to be pumping high rates of P and K. Well, phosphorus in particular, K is one of those that's still somewhat of a mystery and we're working on some, some, new, some current projects looking at this more and more is that there's some soils that have less response, some soils that have more response with it. But just identifying it, because it's, it's interesting talking to consultants, um, working with growers in terms of how they would deem their optimal levels and the ranges you get. You'll get some that are you know, closer to 30, you got some that might be 25 to 30, um, maybe 30 to 40 on that. And if you look at our data consistently, really the response peaks out, if you look at the Bray, and these are the Bray numbers I'm, I'm referring to there, it peaks out about 20 really with that. And you know, while there's always some chance of getting a response, it isn't always it isn't overly that high and the data I have from some of our long-term trials I looked at it over the winter just to look at some of this and it clearly showed essentially just letting it draw down to closer to 20 you started seeing more economic responses in that 15 to 20 range so that would agree with the Iowa data with the Bray that if you're looking at kind of more of a removal based recommendation that you want to probably target about that's that um, that range and if you're going higher than that then looking at uh, maybe some sort of reduced reduced removal rate, where you'd still be putting something on, maybe even a small starter rate, but letting it get back to more of a more of a profitable range is really, it's, it was pretty clear. I mean, some sites it was 15, some sites it was 20. So you look at 15 to 20, and we've seen consistently with some of the other studies that it really weren't seeing much of a response in the high. So that'd be the 15 to 20, better in the medium. So it just depends on on locations, but it seemed to make more sense at least to let it draw down. Interestingly, I read a study that was in, reprinted in Crops and Soils magazine from Nebraska, and they found very similar results to our ELPS sufficiency approach study, where there was no advantage to building the soil test spray level above 25 or 35 part per million in phosphorus on medium and fine textured silt loam and silty clay loam soils. And that's pretty much what we found. There's really no advantage agronomically. If it's a management decision that the grower feels more comfortable if it's long-term long land tenure and they, they want to minimize risk of a yield loss or minimize risk of variability in the soil test across the landscape, maybe they feel more comfortable at 25. But as Dan, you said, the probability of getting a response and that response being large enough to being a return on investment for that application when you're in that 20 to 25 part per million range is pretty small. And even if you do get a yield response, if it's one or two or three percent, probably isn't going to pay for that application that year. And that's one of the things that, you know, I struggle with because with phosphorus, it is somewhat of a long-term approach. When you look at some of these economics, it's not as clear as nitrogen where you get this strong response consistently to corn. I mean, you've got the residual impact, which does come into play, and then you've got the, the impact of the, the new fertilizer, which the... the Use efficiencies of phosphorus, I don't know, is what, 30 40%? Yeah. I mean, it isn't all that high in terms of what we get for utilization. So a lot of what we're really applying is being cycled back into the soil for what's being taken out of the soil itself. So, you know, looking at that, I, I, I just I said I struggle, and that's one of the reasons why I decided this time around, look at a split system, just look at just a general framework for some sort of removal-based systems, but just outlining this, outlining this to growers. And... 
I think the only argument I could make that makes a lot of sense for going to higher levels is situations with low commodity prices. So say I've built up to a point, now it's time to, we, we always talk about phosphorus and the soil as a bank for phosphorus, time to start making withdrawals out of that. It isn't a perfect system because it isn't that you get positive interest from that system, but at least you could weather some years where you want to trim back costs. and. You know, looking at it in terms of the economics, I don't think we really need to be looking at making huge economic trims in it, but even if you can make, you know, 5-10% reduction in costs across the board, I think that at least can make some difference, at least in getting something back, because it's, this is the easiest one looking at it, phosphorus. I mean, we've got, I think, the best information in terms of all of the nutrients with the soil test for the management side of looking at probability of response, magnitude of response, Got a lot of data that shows pretty clear in terms of what the critical levels should be. Potassium has been more of a question mark, but um, with, with phosphorus has been the easiest one, I think. And that's seemingly the one to me, if you look at prioritizing a lot of the growers, I mean, it's nitrogen, it's phosphorus, probably sulfur, and then potassium kind of seems to be the forgotten child every once in a while in terms of management with that. And um, I'm not so sure that's the best decision across all acres. Certainly there's some areas that are high pH that need to be addressed more consistently, but um, you know it's an area that, that I think where if you're going to make reductions, it makes sense that, that reductions could occur a lot easier if you have a soil test backing you up. In the last several years, you know the phosphorus uh, cost of phosphorus fertilizer is pretty significant um, or part of your fertilizer bill. I mean, potassium is actually a little cheaper, and sulfur is relatively inexpensive. So nitrogen and phosphorus make up a significant portion for corn of a of a grower's fertilizer bill. And I see it a lot, too, on the comments. We look at the Facebook comments after we write something, somebody will comment back, well, phosphorus is cheap. Well, and okay, I mean, it's for, for cents-wise, I don't know what it's running now. Is it 30, 40 cents? I mean, it's usually it's 40. It usually a run around, I think, the kind of the 0.1 or a little bit higher than the 0.1 price ratio. And still, if I look at it, I mean, the thing is, the question I have is, are you neglecting other things just to apply phosphorus? I mean, is there other opportunity cost in there somewhere where you could invest the money somewhere else that it's going to make more economic sense. Say weed control, keeping some things under under control. We've seen some big issues in fields. Or other nutrients. Are you neglecting something else? I mean, certainly what I don't want to see growers do is neglect, if phosphorus is an issue, neglecting it, then looking to some of these specialty fertilizer products and spending a few bucks on these, um, thinking that they're going to do miracles if they're neglecting one thing. But it's if you have the soil test data in hand, I mean, you should have a really good tool to look at risk assessment across your field and, and whether or not you're going to be short. And that's kind of the main stressing point there is in that information. I mean, if you've got it, use it to be more prescriptive of where you're at and make sure you're investing your money where it's going to make the most economic sense. And one of, <clears throat> one of the other things that you brought up in the past, Dan, that I think is really good, is if you're using starter fertilizer with usually phosphorus as a significant component, Make sure you're crediting that and subtracting it from your total application. And then also remember that a little bit of inferral pop-up starter goes a long way. We don't need really high rates of those products. Um, we've done enough work over the last several years to show that, you know, as, as little as 15 pounds of phosphate in a starter does a significant amount for a corn crop. Well, even 10 pounds. I mean, we look at the medium classification. I think the variable rate starter study we had a number of years back we could get away with you know two and a half five gallons of 1034 compared to where we were putting on 120 units p205 broadcast to simulate a two-year removal for a corn soybean rotation so if you look at it in terms of that you've got a lot of flexibility in terms of you're putting something on because what i find a lot of times with phosphorus something is better than nothing and when you're going to get a response and you get a 
fairly step, large step in response to that initial application. Then beyond that, it's we've seen certainly some instances. I had some sites last year on Morris where you'd have pretty strong rate, rate um, increase or yield increase to about 90 units P205. Um, but that was a pretty low testing site. So the thing about it is that it is somewhat site specific. And I did take some flack um, from some of my comments earlier this winter about um, timing of application in the corn soybean rotation. So I did um, release some additional data on that um, because I think I had some growers that were asking about timing with pHs of eight or greater that, you know, having some really significant issues with, with tie up and I think those are some things to think about, but um, there's there's just a lot of flexibility. And again, looking at the data, the data is pretty clear in terms of what we're seeing. Um, the rate-wise, um, we are looking at that. Um, the system that what I did put in place, one of the things that if you look at the medium to or the, the low to very low situations, I still would recommend kind of what we have in our current guidelines because many of the states, if you look at it, they're not necessarily a strong build and maintenance. It's a hybrid where it's more sufficiency-based at the low to very low with rates that would slowly build over time versus a rapid build and then a maintenance level kind of built around the maybe the medium to high testing range so that's kind of the thing and one of the things with some of the newer um, um, publications that we'll likely be putting out I think I'm going to lay some of this out there I think the question of an optimal rate a grower really needs to decide where they want to be a lot of them I mean really the high testing range is, is probably the most optimal if you look at e some sort of economics with what I would call essentially a proven yield, if you're using a removal, don't use the last year's yield map um, because you're going to have some pretty big expenditures some years. And what we've seen is over time, if you use just a kind of an average yield or a proven yield for that field, maybe a five, ten year yield average, um, that, that tends to work out about as good as anything. So it's one of those things I see a lot of little tweaking always when you, you talk to growers in terms of changing the rates little by little. But it really doesn't matter. 10 pounds, 20 pounds here and there, it's really not going to make that much of a difference. So save your money. Stick with the, if you had an original plan out, you're using something and don't just start tweaking it just based on last year's yield. Um, look at your yield over time and, and make that decision. All right. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank uh, the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening.